0: Good uh, morning, guys. Uh, as Grant said, my name's Zach. Uh, I'm on staff with H2O Cincinnati. I graduated last uh, spring, actually, from UC with degrees in professional writing and creative writing. Um, but most of you probably know that. What some of you probably don't know is that I was actually a transfer student. Uh, so I started off my college career at Malone University, which is about four hours north in Canton, Ohio. Um, it's like a small 2,000-person Christian college. Uh, not many people there. It's kind of like a little bubble. Of a Christian world there. Um, and While I was there I was on the swim team. I was almost like a spiritual leader of the swim team as one of two Christians, two of the Christians on the men's team. Um, I was working to become a student chaplain within the dorm my sophomore year. Um, I was doing all these religious things while at Malone. I had a really close connection with the campus pastor um, and when I, I ended up getting injured during swimming, tearing my labrum and it was one of the biggest factors that caused me to transfer to Cincinnati. Um, and upon transferring, the, um, it took me a while to get involved in a church, but after I got involved in H2O a little bit, like very small amount involved, I heard about this program called The Well. Um, and if you don't know what The Well is, it's essentially our discipleship program. And so what we do during that is you get paired with a mentor, um, like that you, meet with them, you meet with them weekly, and it's essentially like a church membership class where you learn about the church, learn how you can use God's gifts to glorify the kingdom. Um, And then after the well, you have a thing called deeper waters, uh, which you have to be able to go through the well and graduate the well to enter deeper waters, which is simply dive into the scripture more. We've done some on evangelism. Perkle's taught a lot on books of the Bible, such as Isaiah or Ezekiel. Um, And I went into the well with a complete opposite mindset than you should have. Um, Some of you here can probably attest to this, but I went into the well with this mindset of, I was a student chaplain. I was working to become a student chaplain. I did all these religious things. I don't need the well. Um, I should just jump to deeper waters. Like, I'm better than this. The well is below my knowledge at this point. Um, and as a result, <laughs> went through the entire well, and I don't remember a single thing that I learned during the well. I've since joining staff. I've since like, looked back on the, all the well notes. And was like, oh yeah, this is during the well. I've taught a well. And I'm like, oh, I don't remember learning this. Um, I remember teaching on it now. Uh, And it got back to this aspect where I was completely blinded by my pride in order to understand that God was trying to teach me something in that time. Like, if I would have listened and used, um, and, like, put my pride aside, there was a lot that I could have used from the well in that moment to push me a lot closer to God. Um, And I tell that story this morning for two reasons. One, we're going to be going through the parable of the Pharisee and the tax, tax collector, which you know anything about it. It hinges heavily on pride, Um, and two, I'm not up here preaching from a pedestal or anything. Pride is something that every single one of us deals with, and it's something that is (laughs) a struggle throughout our entire lives, Um, and so this is a lot of what God's been teaching me recently, Um, so I'm speaking to you as someone who is currently learning this as well. Uh, So I'm going to pray and then dive into the scripture. Um, Heavenly Father, (laughs) we just thank you for this uh, time to come here and worship you, learn about your word. Um, and lift your name up, Lord. Um, we pray for the churches around the world that don't have this privilege to gather large like this and have to hide in their basements uh, for fear of persecution, God. Uh, we give you praise this morning for who you are, your character, um, and I simply ask that you that you speak through me. There's not my words, there's your words. And if I, speak of any, if, if I say anything that's not of you, that it falls upon deaf ears. Um, God, we praise you for who you are. Amen. Uh, So we're going to be, if you have your Bible with you, it's going to be up on the screen. If you don't, we're going to be in Luke 18, 9 through 14 this morning. Uh, So to read that, it says, To some who were confident in their own righteousness and looked down upon everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all those who humble themselves will be exalted. Okay, so I want to give a little bit of background to the book of Luke first. Um, So it's one of the three synoptic gospels, which is essentially a fancy word for the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and a lot of their stories are the same. They're told from different perspectives, but they cover the same material a lot of times. Um, and Dr. Luke, who wrote the book of Luke and also the book of Acts, um, was most likely a Gentile. He was a physician in his time. Um, and one of his primary goals was writing it when writing his Gospel, uh, which is one of the things that separates him from Matthew and Mark, is that he was writing it to show the place of the Gentile Christians in God's kingdom. Uh, so up until, that, up until Christ, essentially, the, God's kingdom referred to the Jewish people, God's chosen people. And when Christ came, that kingdom was then expanded to the Gentiles and the Jews. And so Luke, as a Gentile, was writing to his people saying, hey, like, we can righteousness is now offered to all of us, Gentile or Jew. Uh, you see this in Paul's letters. You see this in, throughout Luke's gospel of him getting to this. Um, and so this is one of Luke's core themes, is that how people are justified and restored to a relationship with God. And so as as we dive through this scripture, keep that theme in your mind. Uh, So I'm essentially just going to go through verses 9 all the way through it um, and dissect these. So starting with verse 9, I think we can often overlook opening sentences in parables, and books of the Bible, just like, oh, this is nothing, like the genealogy of Matthew. I doubt anybody has ever fully read that. And if you have, praise to you. (laughs) Um, um, And so... I think the introductions are extremely important because if we just jump to the meat of the story, we often, story, we often miss what the story is actually about. Um, and so in verse 9 it says, To some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down at everyone else, Jesus told this parable. And so right here we, we can pull out two key things. Uh, first, the audience. Uh, so we see Jesus addressing specific people throughout the Gospels. Um, more often than not, he's addressing the Pharisees, uh, which is a Jewish sect um, And this parable is unique because Jesus is not addressing the Pharisees, but anyone that was confident of their own righteousness. Um, And then as a result, they look down at everybody else. Uh, And then we also get the speaker from that as well. So aside from simply announcing who spoke the words, like if you have a red-letter Bible, you can obviously tell that Jesus wrote this. Luke says that Jesus wrote this. I think one of the other key reasons that uh, Dr. Luke pulls out and specifically says, hey, this is Jesus speaking, is because he often speaks in riddles. Uh, so Jesus speaks in these hard-to-understand parables. He speaks in lofty language that not everybody understands. And so when you see, that, you see those red letters in your Bible, you see the words, Jesus said this, it's kind of a call to us to put on the brakes and really pay attention to what is actually being said here. Uh, so in verse 9, we get the audience, the reason for the parable and the speaker. Um, and then in verse 10, we get the setting of the parable and who is involved. Uh, so it reads, Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, and the other a tax collector. Uh, And to to us in our day and age, the term tax collector may seem a bit foreign, or even if it doesn't, it's hard for us to fully understand why Jesus would choose to use a Pharisee and choose to use a tax collector in this parable. Um, And so tax collectors were seen as traitors to the Jewish culture at the time. Um, And you have to remember that at this time, the Roman Empire had control over Israel, which was the promised land that God called his people out of Egypt to deliver them to. And so, this is a foreign nation that had control over the land that God promised to the Jewish people. Uh, And so, and the tax tax collectors were Jewish people who chose to work for the Roman Empire. Uh, So, a good uh, analogy would be, um, if you think of Nazi-occupied France. uh, If you think of a French person during that time, willingly choosing to work for the Nazis who had control over their country. The, the French people would not like that person. They would be a traitor to the French people. And the same was seen as, as tax, tax collectors. Wow. Um, to the Jewish people. Um, and then on the other, other side of the spectrum, you have the Pharisees, which they are complete polar opposi- opposites. The Pharisees are the most populous Jewish, Jewish sect during the time. They upheld the law. They were seen as righteous people. Um, and yet they're the people that Jesus often calls out in the Gospels. Um, and so those are the two characters we have within this parable. Um, and so to talk about the setting some more, I don't want to spend too much time here, but I think it's important to understand the setting, uh, to fully understand what's happening. Uh, and so if you look at the term to pray specifically, um, if I said I'm going to the church to pray, uh, there's likely an image that comes into your mind of me going, going to uh, a, church, a church in the area during a non-service time and spending alone time with God. Um, And that isn't wrong. If I were to say that in today's day and age, that's exactly what I would mean. But in uh, Semitic speech, the term to pray refers to both private devotional prayer and public worship. Um, And since Luke says two men went up to the temple to pray, um, he is referring to a time of public worship. And in those times, the only daily service in the temple was the atonement offerings uh, that that took place at dawn and at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Um, and during those atonement offerings, you, ha- you would have the blood of a lamb that was sprinkled on an altar uh, to atone for the sins of Israel. And then at a certain time in the ceremony, the officiating priests would enter into the outer part of the sanctuary, um, and the rest of those in attendance would enter into private devotional prayer to God. Uh, and so for the rest of this parable, you can assume that it happens after the priests went into the outer part of the sanctuary and the people are giving private prayers to God. Uh, so with all that in mind, we finally get to, get first, like, the meat, per se, of the story um, in verses 11 and 12. So the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evil evildoers, adulterers, or even like this, this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. So before anything else, I want to point out that fasting twice a week, as the Pharisee said it, um, is not a part of Mosaic Law. So the law only commanded Israelites to fast on the annual Day of Atonement, And the Pharisees chose to add to the law um, to fast, like, before and after the Day of Atonement, and then also on the other two major feasts during the year. So the Pharisees added from one fast a year to 12 fasts a year. And then this guy takes it a step further and says, I fast twice a week. Um, And so he's essentially bragging to God about upholding a law that God didn't even give him. And then he goes on to state after that in verse 12 that he gives a tenth of all he gets— and this is a good thing. It seems like a good thing. It is a good thing. Um, but to see what is wrong with the statement, we have to go to Matthew 23:23, 23, 23 um, where Jesus is addressing Pharisees and teachers of the law about this issue. So Jesus says here, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of all your spices, mint, dill, cumin, but you have neglected the most important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. So we see that while tithing is a bad thing, the Pharisee is completely missing what the law, the Judaic law that that God gave the Israelites, is about. Um, Justice, mercy, faithfulness, and instead use his own works as proof of his righteousness. Um, And together, these lead to the first of the three major takeaways from this passage, which is pride is dangerous and pride is deadly. Um, (laughs) uh, If you didn't know me, I absolutely love C.S. Lewis. Um, I have like two of every single copies of his books, Whenever I have a chance, I go through them. And when I first started prepping for, prepping for this, I pulled out essentially all my C.S. Lewis books and sk- started skimming through them. Um, and I found this quote from him that he states that pride is the complete anti God state of mind. Uh, and so I read that while prepping, and as an extremely prideful individual, um, com- almost completely dismissed it as Lewis taking things to the extreme. He can sometimes seem like he's taking stuff to the extreme. Um, and then as I continued reading more and more C.S. Lewis quotes, continued diving into the scripture about this, I came upon another quote of his, which read, if you think you're not conceited, prideful, it means that you're very conceited indeed. <laughs> like, my very resistance, resistance to the idea of pride being anti-God was prideful. Uh, so I started sifting through scripture more to dig into this. Um, and what I saw is, like, the term pride is anti-God. It's not in, the, it's not in scripture, but that theme is presented all throughout the Bible. Um, and so just a couple verses about that, um, re- referring to the, the, that the pride are resisted by God, James 4, 6, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. The proud are abashed by God, Isaiah 2, 12, uh, for the day of the Lord of hosts shall come upon everything proud and lofty, upon everything lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Uh, the proud have a hindrance to knowing God, uh, Psalm ten four and Proverbs 26, 12, the wicked in his proud countenance does not seek God. God is in none of his thoughts. Do you see a man wise in his own eyes? There's no, there's more hope for a fool than for him. Uh, so the Bible is pretty clear on how it views pride. Um, it's pride is subtle, deceitful, it's sadistic in its nature, and at the very core of its nature is this idea of competitiveness. Like pride gets no pleasure from simply having something; only having more of it than the next person. Uh, and so nobody is prideful of being rich or wise or the looks. The prideful will be in richer. The prideful will be in wiser or better looking than the person sitting next to them. Um, And I'm sure there's a a really good picture that's playing out in verse 11. The Pharisee doesn't say, God, I thank thank you that you have made me refrain from robbery, evil, and adultery. In fact, I think he goes beyond simply comparing himself to others uh, and insinuates that it is God who made him superior to other people. Um, God, I thank you that I am not like other people. I am not like this person. I'm not like this person. I don't have what they have. Um, or I have more than they have. And I actually think all of us could fill in that blank. Um, I think every single person in this room has had that thought where it's like, God, I thank you that I'm not like blank. I thank you that I'm not like the homeless person sitting on the street. I thank you that I'm not like this person who just got an F on on this test. Um, Instead of giving the glory to God, it immediately reflects it back on yourself. Uh, And so it's common when we read Bible stories to place ourselves in the shoes of the hero. the person who is said to honor God, or in this case, praying like the tax, tax collector does. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. So I'm not saying that your prayers have never looked like that. Um, but I know that some of you, when you read verse 11, uh, this is me, myself, probably thought to yourself, Phew, I'm glad I'm not like that Pharisee. Uh, and I hate to break it to you, but you are. I'm like that Pharisee. We, we all pray like that Pharisee. We all have thoughts like that Pharisee. And it's so easy to fall into that trap. Um, just a couple weeks ago, I was sitting at the 86. Uh, which is, if you're not familiar, familiar with Clifton, it's a coffee shop, like, two minutes, I don't know, four-minute walk away. Um, and I was sitting there, and there's a staff member from Crossroads sharing the gospel with this Muslim man. And my first instinct wasn't to pray for the Crossroads Staffroads Cross member to be able to share the gospel effectively or for the Muslim man to open his heart. Um, like my first instinct was how I could possibly share the gospel better. Uh, I was like, oh, This dude said this, if I said this, maybe the Muslim would understand it. I could share it better than he could. Um, And whether that's true or not really doesn't matter. Uh, The Spirit can work through anybody. Um, And so by thinking that, I not not only diminished the power that the Spirit could have working through that person and in the Muslim man's life, um, but in what should have been an opportunity to worship God, I worship myself instead. Um, And I think every single one of us falls into that trap at times. no matter what happens, if we receive something, if we get something, if someone gives us a compliment, instead of giving that back to God and thanking God for that, it's, oh, yeah, I am better looking than this person, I am richer than this person, and it takes it all back on yourself. And this is why pride is so dangerous. Uh, It's that no matter how, no matter if you fall on the side of pride where you think too highly of yourself and oftentimes put yourself in the shoes of God, or if you think too lowly of yourself and think you're think of yourself as worthless and diminish the value that God has placed upon you, um, it's still keeping you from experiencing the full intimacy of of a relationship with our God. Um, And so if that doesn't make sense, think of it this way. If you fall on either side of that spectrum, then you are are repeatedly putting yourself in the courtroom to prove your worth, when the simple truth of the matter is that Christ already did that for you. And um, that leads into verse 13 and my second point, which is that true humility can only be found in God. Uh, So looking at verse 13, it reads, But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. So to preface this verse, I want to look at where it says the man beat his breast. Um, For us, this likely doesn't seem like an abnormal thing to do. Uh, We see football football players do it all the time upon scoring. They'll, like, spike the ball, jump in the air, roar, or if they're on the Steelers, like, a pitiful little meow. Um... (laughs) Uh, they, like, powder their chest like a wild ape, and it's odd how we often associate with pride. I doubt any of you have ever, like, watched a football game, seen a football player do this, and thought to yourself, hmm, that guy's super humble. Like, <laughs> that's not a thing that comes up. Um, but that doesn't exist in Eastern, Eastern culture. In Eastern culture, um, only women beat on their chest. It's not a thing that's done by men. And actually, the only other place we see this happen in the Bible where a man beats on his chest is at the crucifixion of Jesus. Um, and so Luke 23, 44 through 49 reads, It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. For the sun stopped, stopped shining, and the curtain of the, of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he said this, he breathed his last. The, cent- the centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness this, this sight saw it took place, they beat their breasts and went away. But all, those who stood, but all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. So you see these men witnessing somebody being crucified on a cross um, beating their breasts. And if it took something as deeply moving as that to make men beat their breasts, what does that say about the tax collector in coming before, in coming before God? What does that say about his reverence in coming before God? Um, he understood that the gifts God gave him were just that, gifts. They were given to him by the grace of God alone, not because of anything he had done. He understood that God was the one sustaining his very life, that God was the one he was coming before and praying to. Um, and that was the same God that time and time again throughout history, he had demonstrated his power by saving his people, even when their eyes were everywhere but him. Um, this, ta- this man understood that, this, that he had nothing to be prideful about because everything he had was from God. Uh, and this is why he comes before God. Um, He is so moved that he beats his breast and prays a short yet profound prayer. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And you see the difference here between his prayer and the Pharisees, uh, and it's staggering. The Pharisees' prayer is all about what he had done to make make him righteous, and the tax collector's prayer was about what he had done to separate him from God and humbly asking for God to make him righteous in return. Um, And if if you haven't read The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness by Timothy Keller, uh, read it. It's like 40 pages Print big enough that your grandma could probably read it without her reading glasses. Um, And it's absolutely jam packed with truth. Uh, In it, Timothy Keller says this about humility C.S. Lewis says in Mere Christianity, or C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity makes a brilliant observation about gospel humility at the very end of his chapter on pride. If we were to meet a truly humble person, Lewis says, we would never come away from meeting them thinking they were humble. They would not be always telling us they were a nobody because a person who keeps saying they're nobody is actually a self-obsessed person. The thing we would remember from meeting a truly gospel, humble person is how much they seem to to be totally interested in us. Because the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. Gospel humility is not needing to think about myself, not needing to connect things with myself. It is an end to thoughts such as, I'm in this room with these people. Does that make me look good? Do I want to be here? True gospel humility means I stop connecting every experience, every connection with myself. In fact, I stop thinking about myself, the freedom of self-forgetfulness, the the blessed rest that only self-forgetfulness brings. He's saying here that gospel humility is not putting yourself down or thinking less of yourself or thinking of yourself as worthless. Um, It is merely thinking of yourself less. And there's no no one better to look to for this than Jesus, um, who straight up said... He came here not to serve, but, or not to, yeah, not to serve, what is it? Huh? Not to be yes, there we go. Came here to serve, not to be served. And we are called to imitate him and trust in his righteousness and not our own. Um, and that leads right into my third point um, and the entire underlying message of this passage. And so if you remember back to what Luke's, one of Luke's core themes is, with about how people are made righteous and brought to justification before God. Um, This is the entire underlying theme of this parable, um, is that we can only be made righteous by God. Uh, So I want to delve a little bit into what the term righteousness actually means. Um, And in our world, in the Greek and Hellenistic world, it often refers to somebody who is generally moral, obeys the law, is seen as a good person. Um, You look back at the Pharisee's words and we see that this this is how he defines righteousness. He talks all about what he has done. It's about what he has done. It's about how he's followed law, it's all about how he's a good person and gained his own righteousness. Um, and this isn't what the word righteous is saying here, though. The term righteous comes from the Hebrew word tzedakah, and it is a, it is a term that denotes a relationship. Uh, the righteous person, therefore, is not someone who observes a particular code of ethics in order to earn the way to righteousness, but a person who is granted a special relationship in accept, of acceptance in the presence of God. And you see this is the central theme of the Bible. Um, that there is a God who is greater than us in everything, yet desires a deep, intimate relationship with a people who constantly rebel against Him, and, do, and to do so, He demonstrates His saving acts in history. Um, whether that is calling His people out of Egypt, whether that is striking down the armies of Israel, um, whether that's sending uh, His Son to die for everybody—like you see Him saving His people over and over again, no matter how many times His people rebel against Him—and in response. To in response to the righteousness we are granted then, the relationship that God invites us into, he calls us to act in loyalty to the giver of the unearned status. Um, And so a great picture of this is in Micah 6, 3 through 8. Uh, So this is, uh, this reads, my people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me, I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. My people, rather, uh, or my people, remember, what Balak, king of Moab, plotted, and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. Uh, some Bibles translate that saving acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Uh, shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of olive oil? Shall I, first, shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O oh mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. And so in this passage, we see God's saving acts followed by everything his people try to do to repay him, to earn the way back to him, whether that's killing their firstborn child, slaughtering rams, um, and then God telling them all that he requires of them, which is to love justly, to, uh, to, love, or to act justly, love mercy, and to walk humbly with him. And this is what the Pharisee in the parable completely missed. Um, He was so caught up in trying to do the law, earning his way to righteousness, and in himself that he missed what the law is actually about. Um, And we see the tragic result at the very end of this passage. And so the parable ends with this. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all those who humble themselves will be exalted. And so, (laughs) right here, we see a man who is convinced he was righteous with God. Just attended a ceremony where they slaughtered a lamb to cover his sins, and he went home unjustified. And it all stems down to that he was completely blinded by his own pride to see that it was not him that could make, his, make him righteous; it was all God that can make him righteous. There's nothing he can do. Um, and so, uh, look back at the beginning of this verse: to whom the parable was spoken to? Uh, those who were those who believed in their own righteousness. Um, Jesus thought the best way to show this was by coupling that with a story about pride and humility. Um, And I think that says a lot about the nature of pride and a lot about what God thinks of pride. Um, And I fully agree with C.S. Lewis in the state that it's the anti-God state of mind because ultimately it's being confident of your own righteousness. And there's no such such thing as self-righteousness, and praise God for that Um, because if there was, we'd have no hope. The gospel would not be the good news, um, and that is not the case. God freely grants us righteousness through this ultimate saving act of Christ's sacrifice and resurrection. There's no greater news than that, and his blood washes us clean. Uh, So if you wrestle with pride, the first step towards humility is admitting you are prideful and coming before God. So pray like the tax, tax collector. Pray to be humbled. Pray in reverence before God. And if you have yet to come to know God as your Savior and were brought back into a relationship with him that he has called you into, um, I urge you to find me, another staff member, a city leader, or even a friend after service and speak with us. Uh, And so to close, I want to read Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, um, which personally is like one of the most moving passages in the Bible, I think. Uh, So Paul writes this. As for you, you are dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live, Yeah, we thank you for being here. We thank you for your grace, for your saving acts throughout history. Um, we give you praise for who you are. Uh, we, we thank you for sending your Son to make us righteous, and that righteousness is, does not come down to what we do, it does not come down to ourselves. Um, Lord, simply pray that anybody here who does not know you um, would, come, would find you, um, that you, that they would find somebody to speak to you after the service, God. Um, and that you would just be moving in their hearts. God, I thank you for everything that you've done for us, everything that um, you've called us out of, the sin that you've called us out of, God. And, Lord, I pray for humility for everybody here, um, that we all here struggle with pride. And I just ask that you help us accept humility, help us accept true gospel humility, um, and not not thinking less of ourselves or putting ourselves down, but thinking of ourselves less and thinking of you more. Amen.